Welcome to the 10 Minute Top 10, a new podcast series from the Georgia Partnership for Excellence in Education. Our goal is to spotlight research and policy content that informs the daily work of Georgia's education leaders in the broader advocacy community. Today, we kick off the 10 Minute Top 10 by focusing on our youngest, infants and toddlers. Issue 7 of the 2022 Top 10 Issues to Watch focused on protecting Georgia's investments in early learning for two reasons. To close school readiness gaps and to support full employment for working adults by increasing access to childcare. Today's expert has conducted research on the factors that affect childcare access for low-income families and families of color. I'd like to welcome our expert, Gina Adams. Gina works at the Urban Institute. I wanted to start our conversation by asking Gina this question. What kind of barriers do families face when trying to find and pay for childcare? Hi, Matt, and thanks for inviting me to join you all today. Um, so let me start out by just laying a little bit of context, which is the main way that parents get help paying for childcare is through a federal state program called the Child Care and Development Fund. And that's money that states use to administer subsidy programs that help basically parents with low incomes pay for care. So mostly helps low income parents who are working, but also can help parents who are in education and training. So what I want to talk about is that program, um, because that's the main way we help parents pay. So there's a lot of barriers. The first and biggest one really is that there's only enough money in the program to serve about one in seven kids and families who are eligible under federal law. And so as a result, states can't serve all of those who are eligible. So for example, a lot of states don't advertise that the serve program even exists because all the funds are already being used up. And they have to make some really hard choices about which families can get help paying for care and which ones get turned away. Is it first come, first served? Is it give priority to the lowest income? Is it give a priority to those few parents who are working and rather than those who need it for education and training? And there's trade-offs within the program, which means that often states, what they do is they pay less for care because that way they can serve more kids, but it also means that families can't get the quality care that they, that they may need. So it's a very tough set of trade-offs that are all due to the fact that we only invest a fraction of what's needed. So that's the first thing that really shapes who can get access and the challenges that families have. The second set of barriers is that even if there are funds available to help a parent, what does that parent have to do to get it and how easy or hard is it for them to get? And this is where how a state designs their program can come into play because they really need to think about the realities that face families who they're trying to serve and to make sure that the service fits their needs. So let me just give you some examples. Um, for example, we know that families with lower incomes and particularly families of color who have faced structural barriers to things like good education and good employment and who are more likely to live in communities that have really systemic barriers to resources, those families are also more likely to face barriers to decent jobs and to have trouble affording care. So those are the kinds of families that you would really want to make sure can get help paying for care, right? That's who the program should be serving. But the services that we've designed, the systems over the years are not necessarily designed as well as they should be to meet their needs. For example, they may assume that you have internet access. Well, we know communities of color and low-income communities are much less likely to have internet. They assume transportation. They assume literacy and language capabilities that families may not have. Each of those can be a barrier. They may ask for documentation about employment and earnings that can be really hard for families who work multiple jobs, whose jobs change a lot, um, who may have jobs like cleaning houses or viewing yard work. They have lots of different people that they're working for. Um, they may predominantly pay for types of care that are available during daytime hours, not recognizing that about a third of all kids with working parents have parents who work non-traditional hours. 
And those proportions are even higher for communities of color, families with low incomes and single parents. So each of those things can create a barrier. Do you know about the program? Can you get it if you do? What do you have to do to get it? And can you use it for the kinds of care that you need? And that's great. A lot of the work that the Georgia Partnership has been doing recently is working with communities to figure out how to provide childcare, but also reframing childcare in terms of an economic development objective as well. Could you speak a little bit in terms of um, kind of reframing the policy objectives around childcare and why it's so important, not just to the children that are being served, but the families who could maybe potentially um, work different hours or be able to re-enter the workforce. For better or worse, the pandemic has really helped raise awareness again about childcare is about both supporting children's development and supporting parental work. It is not either or, <laughs> it is both. And what a family needs may be different depending on the time of the day, right? I mean, you absolutely want to have children have access to high quality education services and educational opportunities in a variety of settings during the day. But what you might think about they would need at night and overnight, early mornings, weekends might be very different than that. And unfortunately, when I think about how we've approached things, and I understand why we've done this as a field, right? We really have been trying to focus on let's support quality, let's support thinking about what children need. But I think we've kind of lost track of what the family needs and the parent needs. And we need to bring that in, not either or, but and, right? We need to do both of those things at the same time. So for example, many of the families we talked about non-traditional hour care, they were using licensed centers during the day. They just didn't want that at night, right? That was just not the right thing that they absolutely believed in having group settings with educational stimulation, et cetera, during the day. But what they wanted at night was a child to be able to have a nice calm evening eating dinner at their own table having a bedtime routine, knowing what they're going to sleep, being able to get a good night's sleep. So I think when I think about what I would really love to have us do as a, as a field is to bring back kind of the family parent-centered design idea, understanding we all know quality matters, we need to keep that vision, but that we really need to make sure that it meets the child and the family's needs. Um, and again, I think that, for example, I'm going to talk about that non-traditional hour care, it would be a little bit different, right? We would be making sure that parents had options during the day that met those needs. They have different kinds of options at night. We wouldn't be trying to force feed a definition of quality that you usually use during the day and say that happens happen at night. And we wouldn't be doing the opposite either, right? I mean, it's a different, it's a different set of needs for children have and families have. So I feel like for me, bringing families and parents back to the forefront, asking them what they need, seeing the extent to which our systems do or don't support that, and then filling those holes so that we're making sure that we're really truly addressing the needs that families have would go a long way to meeting uh, issues of equity and, and, and goals that we have for children and families. Um, I don't know whether your audience is aware of this, but there's a really interesting visual out there about the concept of equity, because I know it's something that's really confusing for um, people. It's a word that people used a lot without a lot of definite discussion about what it means sometimes. And one of my favorite images is this image of, a, of, um, of people with bicycle and you have, you know, a child and you have a middle-aged person, you have an old person, you have a person who's disabled and you have a person who, you know, and then if you give them all the same bicycle, they can't ride it, right? <laughs> Only the person who's grown up can ride that bike. But if you design the bicycle differently so each of those children, people can ride the bike, 
then you're making sure that what you're doing meets their needs, right? And that's really with me what equity is about is making sure that we are designing our public systems and our approaches to meet the needs of the people we're trying to serve, which is what good public service is, which means you first have to understand those needs and make sure that what you're doing fits. I just would like for us to go back a little bit and look at what we're doing in the context of people's lives. Right, so one thing that we were curious too at the Georgia Partnership was when we're talking about what state agencies can do, we have a really great uh, relationship with the Department of Early uh, Care and Learning, and they're doing a lot to kind of shore up and make stable some of um, the industry after COVID hit. And some of the uh, funds are gonna be expiring, for instance, for the CAPS program. And so some of the subsidies are gonna be expiring in, in November. And so, what would you say to the state agency that's saying we had all these millions of dollars and now they're going to go away? What do we do? What would you say in terms of sustainability? What could they do? Um, that's a good question. I think one of the things I would say is that a number of the things that we talk about in that paper that you mentioned are things that need to be fixed inside. Um, and some of them are expensive and some of them really aren't. So but taking some resources to actually talk to parents, talk to providers, talk to caseworkers about where the pain points are, what can be fixed, um, is the application point problem. There's data that, I mean, I know that DECAL has wonderful um, researchers and is very focused on learning from their own work and their own data. So for example, at what point in the process do parents, on the process of applying, do parents drop out? Is it when there's a particular form? Is it that it takes too long? There's huge numbers of things that can be fixed internally. Because probably the problem with sustainability, of course, is that if you don't know that you're going to keep on being able to pay people in the future, it's hard to take more families on right now, right? If you don't know that you're going to be able to pay for them and hopefully they'll you know, be able to be supported for a while. But there's tons of things that can be done to fix the system that's, that's in place. I don't know enough about you know, the, the details in Jordan to know what those are, but I can promise that they... They exist. I do know that DECAL has actually spent some time and energy trying to talk to people about what these issues are. So I think they probably have some good evidence about what kinds of things need to be dealt with. But for those kinds of issues, um, one of the things I've always worried about is when, if you don't take time to look at the core elements of how your system's designed and whether it functions equitably, when new money comes in, it just goes down the same path. So you don't fix it, right? So you have to change the foundational pieces of how you're doing things, how you're paying rates, which providers you pay for, how parents are being treated, what kind of information they have, what the application forms look like. All of those things are internal to the agency and need to be fixed for you to have a more equitable approach that serves families better. And then if you can fix those things, then when new money comes in, you have a strong basis upon which to build on, right? Then you have an equitable framework. You know, you know what's not working well, and you can avoid making those mistakes again, or you can try to minimize the impact of those mistakes because sometimes they're not fixable. Sometimes it's under federal law or things you don't have, but you can, you can understand where your flexibility is, but if you don't look at it, you don't know. Well, I'd like to thank you, uh, Gina, for joining us today and everybody that's interested. Um, Gina is a co-author on a September 2021 publication from the Urban Institute called Assessing Childcare Subsidies Through an Equity Lens. Well, you've certainly given us a lot to think about in Georgia, and thanks for participating in this podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was a pleasure, and good luck to all who are listening. 
You've just listened to the inaugural episode of the 10 Minute Top 10, a new podcast series brought to you by the Georgia Partnership for Excellence in Education. Join us again soon for more in-depth discussions on how state policy can set the tone for change in the Peach State.